This business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, this morning, we will consider the nomination uh, of Ambassador Samantha Power to be the Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development. As I stated at her hearing, I believe Ambassador Power's prodigious public service experience and her dedication to the advancement of humanitarian principles make her impeccably qualified to be the next Administrator of USAID. Upon confirmation, I trust that she will appropriately prioritize and elevate this indispensable and often overlooked development arm of U.S. foreign policy. This nomination comes before the committee at a crucial time in the agency's tenure. USAID will play a crucial role in directing the U.S. response to some of the most important issues of our time, including COVID-19, global forced migration, climate change, and human and resource-driven conflicts. Upon confirmation, Ambassador Powell will also be charged with strengthening a weakened agency. The past four years have taken their toll on USAID. Internal morale is wounded. Relationships with implementing partners are increasingly strained. And the politicalization of aid has tarnished the United States' reputation as a trustworthy partner. I'm confident that Ambassador Power has the capacity and the capability to address these issues. And I am pleased by her commitment, if confirmed, to engage in frequent and open consultation with Congress. With that, I'd like to recognize our distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch, for his comments. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, today, globally, uh, we are in the midst of the worst global uh, pandemic of our generation. Conflict, displacement, hunger, and corruption continue to plague vulnerable populations. Now more than ever, we need a U.S. development agency that is efficient, effective, and accountable. Whoever leads USAID must ensure that U.S. foreign assistance is results-driven, that it leverages other donors, promotes self-reliance, and creates opportunities for private sector-led growth, and most importantly, that it ultimately aligns with the national security interests of the American people. My staff and I have discussed these principles with Ambassador Power at great length. I believe she understands the task at hand. There is no question she has significant qualifications uh, that uh, qualify her for this job. And while I wasn't completely satisfied by some of her responses to direct questions, including the need to eliminate cargo preference requirements for emergency food aid, I am reasonably assured she will uphold her promise to work in a bipartisan manner with Congress on this and other issues. And as a result, I'll be voting uh, for Ambassador Power. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Risch. Are there any other members wishing to make uh, any comments on this nomination? Uh, seeing none, uh, we're going to have to wait uh, till we get a sufficient number of members to begin to conduct a, core, uh, a call, a roll call. So uh, we will hold uh, that in abeyance. And I'll turn to uh, our next hearing uh, and uh, open uh, up with some introductory comments. And at the appropriate time when we have enough members here, we will uh, uh, call the roll uh, uh, yeah, when it's appropriate. And staff, will, is, is that enough? I understand we need one more person, so. Uh, 
Let me uh, start off making a prefatory comment that has nothing to do with either these nominees uh, or uh, the issue at hand, but I think it's uh, compelling to do so. I understand, I understand that we have a quorum now. So based upon that, um, we will turn to the matter at hand. Uh, all debate has been uh, taken on uh, the nomination of Ambassador Samantha Power to be the administrator of USAID. Uh, is there a motion to favorably report the nomination of Ambassador Power to be administrator of the U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development by voice vote? So moved and seconded. Uh, the question is on the motion to favorably report the Power nomination. All those in favor will say aye. 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 Those opposed will say nay. And with it, the ayes have it, and the Power nomination is agreed to. Uh, and will be reported uh, to the full Senate uh, and uh, with a positive recommendation. That completes the committee's business as it relates to the power nomination. I thank our colleagues uh, for being here. Uh, let me turn uh, to, uh, again, to our second part of our business meeting, uh, our, our hearing. Uh, before I do, I, I want to say that I understand the administration will be coming up next week to brief senators on the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. This committee will also receive a classified briefing next Monday. The administration, in my view, was dealt a terrible hand by the last administration on Afghanistan, manifest in a withdrawal agreement that negotiated away all of our leverage with the Taliban. President Biden was left only with bad options. Most senators would agree that the war in Afghanistan has gone on too long and that we want to see our troops home. But as I have said before, how we draw down matters, as does the political arrangement left in our wake. I have many questions. How can the U.S. maintain a capability to conduct counterterrorism operations in the region without a military presence in Afghanistan? What will this decision portend for the women of Afghanistan? Without a U.S. military presence, how long does our intelligence community think the Afghan government can survive in the face of punishing Taliban attacks. So I look forward to these conversations next week. Let me turn to our May two. Respond, uh, absolutely. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first of all, I, I concur in the questions that you have. Uh, do not concur in the initial uh, statement about the prior administration. Th there, there is no good answer to this. Uh, there, there's uh, just questions. Uh, I think that uh, at this point we should look forward rather than backward, and I think we should get answers to those questions and, and decide what uh, how we can assist in the path forward, because that's, that's the most important role we'll play here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Let me turn to our two nominees, Ambassador Newland and Nisea. Congratulations on your nominations, and our thanks to both of you for your willingness to return to the State Department and distinguished careers in the Foreign Service. At this pivotal moment for our foreign policy, for democracy, for the State Department, I'm height heartened that President Biden nominated both of you. Your experience and accomplished diplomats, and you have both demonstrated the strength and commitment necessary to defend our values. The positions you've been nominated for under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, under Secretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights are among the most important in the department. Ms. Zay, I understand that the distinguished senator from Virginia is going to introduce you this morning, so I'll turn to him at this time. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and to members of the committee. It is a real honor for me to introduce a wonderful public servant, Uzra Zaya, 
the nominee for the post described by the chair. Virginia is one of the most connected states in the country to our military mission, but I'm also proud that it's one of the most connected states to our diplomatic and development missions, with many diplomats and State Department staffers calling Virginia home. Uh, Mazea is a 20-year Virginia resident. She's a distinguished diplomat and nonprofit leader who's dedicated virtually her entire adult life to public service, the advancement of human rights and U.S. national security. The duty to serve runs in her family. She is here with her husband, Tom, um, a United States Marine. Together, they have more than 60 years of public service to the American public, which is just wonderful. And I love that we've got a, a diplomat and a military uh, union in the household. That is a wonderful balance. Mazea served five presidents, three Republicans and two Democrats, with distinction for 28 years as a Foreign Service officer on four continents. She's fluent in Arabic, French, and Spanish. She was acting Assistant Secretary of Human Rights, Democracy, and Labor in that post. She led UN, U.S. human rights dialogue with China, Egypt, and Bahrain, among others. She vigorously defended religious freedom around the globe and expanded public-private partnerships to advance LGBT equality and counter gender-based violence. She was charged d'affaire in Paris, and she led the U.S. response to, sadly, three major terror attacks in that city, took U.S.-French cooperation on counterterrorism in Russia to unprecedented levels and elevated U.S. engagement against anti-Semitism and online hate. In India, she crafted a strategic partnership framework over a decade ago that still enjoys broad bipartisan support and today serves as a cornerstone of the U.S. Indo-Pacific engagement. She helped overcome India's longstanding aversion to external democracy promotion and launched new bilateral initiatives to support gender equality in Afghanistan and to support free and fair elections abroad. As a young human rights officer in Syria, she documented the brutality of the Assad regime and led U.S. outreach to Syria's minority religious ethnic communities under siege. Since leaving the State Department, Mazea served for two years as CEO and president of a leading nonpartisan peace builders network where she worked to strengthen the evidence base for successful political transitions and support greater accountability for taxpayer-funded foreign assistance. She also drafted the Council on Foreign Relations report on revitalizing the State Department. Mazea is a trailblazer. She's the proud daughter of Indian-American immigrants. She would be the first Asian-American woman to serve as Undersecretary of State. And I believe she is very, very well prepared to take on this post, and we're proud to support this exemplary Virginian. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Kane, for the robust endorsement of uh, Masaya. Uh, let me uh, conclude. The, the State Department faces unprecedented challenges from restoring America's place in the world to managing the health and economic crisis created by COVID-19. And China and Russia are at the top of the list of foreign policy crises confronting America today. As you know well, Ambassador Newland, the United States needs to act now to stop a resurgent Russia, with Putin once again threatening Ukraine, continuing his attacks on our democracy, and threatening his grip on the Russian people and those who dare to oppose him. I want to applaud the administration for the actions that were announced today. They were robust. Uh, it's a type of action I would have wanted to see. And uh, I look forward to their continuing engagement. On China, we must both confront Chinese attempts to undermine democracy and human rights and compete with them economically.
That is why I'm pleased that Senator Risch and I have authored a bipartisan bill which will make the United States competitive with China and provide us with a clear and coherent national security strategy on China. And while I look forward to a more in-depth discussion on Russia and China during our time for questions, I want to quickly highlight three additional policy areas, Iran, Turkey, and the Western Hemisphere. Although I did not support the JCPOA, I felt strongly that the Trump administration's decision to withdraw without a coordinated diplomatic strategy would embolden Iran and leave us less safe, and Iran's behavior has only validated my predictions. I recently led a bipartisan letter supporting a diplomatic path forward. But let me be clear, that path must go beyond the scope of the JCPOA. I expect that this administration will pursue what the President and the Secretary themselves have endorsed, a stronger and longer agreement. And I will expect you to provide the committee with details on any agreement and on exactly what longer and stronger means. Iran, not surprisingly, is seeking to control the timetable for these discussions by taking provocative actions against vessels in the Arabian Gulf and U.S. military facilities in Iraq. In Turkey, President Erdogan got a free pass from the previous administration, and we are seeing the effects. The purchase of a Russian missile system, military aggression in Nagorno-Karabakh and Syria, bellicose actions against Greece and Cyprus, Long considered a NATO ally, Turkey seems to want to break with us instead of be our partner. And I don't agree with Erdogan's choice, but we have to begin to reorient ourselves in the eastern Mediterranean towards democracies that share our values and our security interests. The administration has an important opportunity here, and I hope they seize it. Finally, in our own hemisphere, we must strengthen our alliances and address forced migration. I'm particularly concerned about the challenges Colombia, our top strategic partner in Latin America, currently faces, including the monumental task of implementing the 2016 peace accord, the violence related to drug trafficking, and the destabilizing influence of the Maduro regime's crimes against humanity in Venezuela. And say I cannot close today without raising a crisis that goes to the core of American values and American leadership, the state of democracy around the world. We are in the midst of a 15-year democratic recession. From Nicaragua to Hungary, democracy is marching backwards. Even worse, authoritarians are using the COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse to steamroll free and fair elections, independent media, and other hallmarks of democracy. And they have assumed that their violations will be met with little resistance. It's time for the United States to step up and speak out on democracy. And I expect that both of you will help lead the charge to restore democracy throughout the world. At a time of unprecedented challenges around the world, America needs outstanding leadership at the State Department. I have no doubt that you're both up to that task. But I expect to hear from both of you today about how you plan to restore America's place in the world, repair democracy, and confront the immense challenges facing us. With that, I turn to the ranking member for his opening comments. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, we all know that undersecretaries of state serve an important role at the department. Uh, they're responsible for day-to-day -day management of and policy coordination for their respective bureaus. 
And uh, we want to thank both of you for your willingness to serve uh, in those capacities. In the case of Ambassador Newland's nomination to be Undersecretary for Political Affairs, this role oversees all regional, bilateral, and multilateral policy issues for the department. This is no small task, obviously. While this position has a broad scope, there are a few specific areas of concern I'd like to address today, uh, the first of which, of course, is China. Next week, uh, this committee will mark up the Strategic Competition, uh, St Strategic Competition Act. This legislation introduced by Senator Menendez and myself. Uh, this counters the Chinese Communist Party's malign influence globally, including by expanding the scope of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States review of foreign money flowing into U.S higher education institutions, advances concrete cooperation with allies and partners in technology, infrastructure development and defense, shines a light on China's predatory economic practices, pushes back on the Chinese Communist Party's influence at the UN, highlights China's growing nuclear missile capacities, and calls on President Biden to assure our extended deterrence to allies and exchange and, and exchange China in engage China in arms control talks. These are just a few of the issues we face when it comes to strategic competition with China. The Biden administration's highest priority and ours here in Congress must be to prioritize resource and respond to the challenge posed by the Chinese Communist Party, as well as opportunities presented by expanded and concrete cooperation with allies and partners, especially in the Indo-Pacific region and in Europe. I want to take this opportunity once again uh, to thank the uh, chairman and the uh, uh, majority party for the negotiations we've had on the China bill. I think this has been a, uh, a very positive step forward, and uh, it's certainly bipartisan. And obviously, as with all these kinds of things, there's parts of it I'm not in love with. But on the other hand, it's always a give-and-take proposition to get uh, where, we w where we want to go. I specifically want to thank the staffs of both of uh, the ma majority and the minority for the give and take that they've entered into and the many hours they've spent negotiating the details of the many pages. I hope we can move this forward. I'm a little bit concerned about the overall idea of, of taking this and wrapping it with uh, six other uh, committees who have ideas along this line. I think that's th these are always difficult enough, but uh, the more of those you wrap together, the more difficult it will be. So whatever happens, I hope we're able to move this bill forward uh, in, in a bipartisan fashion. Next, I'd like to address the administration's ongoing desire to re-enter the, uh, the failed JCPOA. Many of us on both sides uh, in the Senate are closely following negotiations with the P5 plus 1 in Vienna. I concur with the uh, chairman that uh, th this is difficult. This is not an easy proposition. And uh, uh, at the outset, uh, many of us are deeply concerned with the administration's uh, uh, promises to lengthen and strengthen. Unfortunately, it sounds like a bumper sticker, and like the chairman, I'm interested in hearing what the details of uh, that uh, – what, what the details are. Uh, and unfortunately, to me, it's starting to look a lot more like a straight reentry into the 2015 deal, which is not acceptable to me and I think not acceptable to most members of this committee on both sides of the aisle. Uh, discussions uh, with the parties have led me to conclude that, and I, and I hope, 
I hope I'm wrong on this. Negotiators have established working groups to address nuclear compliance and sanctions relief, but they have not established a working group on Iran's regional terrorism, something that a lot of us have repeatedly said must be addressed in any uh, deal with Iran. Our national security interests of Iran must last longer than a single administration. If the administration chooses to continue down a path of a straight re-entry into the nuclear deal, it will be short-lived. Either the next Republican administration will tear down the deal or the nation most directly uh, affected, uh, who's remarkably always excluded uh, from the deal, uh, will take unilateral action, which, is not, uh, which will not end well. To avoid this outcome, the administration must seek bipartisan congressional support for any agreement with Iran, um, feeling that the administration is walking down a, a well-worn partisan path that will repeat the mistakes of the uh, original administration that entered into the deal. I hope all I'm wrong on all of this and that uh, all of us here who have a lot of experience in this uh, will be listened to as we move forward. In Europe, uh, Russia remains a pressing concern. Although Russia is amassing tens of thousands of troops on Ukraine's border as we speak, they, they have uh, still been allowed to continue construction of the malign Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And uh, uh, Ms. Nula, Ambassador Nuland, I, I uh, appreciate your uh, candid discussion with me in that regard. Uh, in, actually, in front of this committee, Senate, Senate, uh, Secretary Blinken testified that he sees the pipeline as a bad deal and has told us that he'd like to see it stopped. Yet, despite having the power to stop it, uh, we haven't seen real action, and I'm very disappointed in this. Uh, he was personally handed uh, by myself and other members of this committee a list, a vetted list of people who need to be sanctioned. Uh, I'm not happy with, uh, with, with what's happened. They keep telling us that, well, they need to vet this and, uh, and prepare a case so that they can, when they put the sanctions on, they can be prepared to go to court. I've told them, no, you don't. Uh, you have probable cause on every one of those people that we put in front of you, and you need to sanction them. Now, when you go to court, you need lawyers that have a, a case well prepared. But there is probable cause on every one of these to be sanctioned that will shut down the, uh, the, the pipeline. The committee drafted and pushed through legislation on a bipartisan basis to prevent the completion. We continue to be concerned by the administration's refusal to fully implement the law and sanction all parties all parties involved in the construction of the pipeline. It is past time that the administration take meaningful action on this issue. I would remind everyone, on day one of this administration, they stopped the XL pipeline on day one. They have in hand direction from this Congress on a bipartisan basis to do the same thing on a Russian pipeline. Uh, if we're going to put American workers out of, out of uh, work, we ought to put the Russian workers out of work on the XL pipeline. Many on this committee bemoan the previous administration's posture on Russia. What is clear is that the Trump administration was tougher on them than uh, Biden has been, uh, President Biden administration has been so far. Next, we have uh, Ms. Zaya's nomination to be Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. This position is tasked with a broad functional portfolio which encompasses human rights, counterterrorism, refugees, migration, and trafficking in persons. We must continue to lead on the promotion of democracy, the rule of law, and respect for human rights around the world, not just because those democratic values form the core of our values as a nation, but also because they lead to stronger partnerships with other nations. I know virtually every member of this committee agrees with me on that proposition. We, with regard to the rule of law, 
I share the administration's concern about the International Criminal Court's decision to investigate U.S. personnel in Afghanistan and uh, Israeli actions in the Palestinian territories. It is completely unacceptable that the ICC has decided to pursue cases clearly outside of their jurisdiction. The department must continue its efforts to protect our personnel from these politically motivated efforts. Again, I thank you both for being here today and your willingness uh, to serve and your family's willingness to undertake the sacrifices necessary to do so. With that, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, we'll now turn to our two nominees. Um, we ask you to summarize your statements in about five minutes or so so we can have a conversation with you. Your full statements will be included in the record. We welcome your family members who may be with you, either virtually or presently. We understand that it's a family affair. There's sacrifices that are made by all uh, in this process, and we uh, appreciate the willingness of your family members as well as yourselves to make the sacrifice. With that, let me turn to Ambassador Newland. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and the members of this committee for the opportunity to appear before you today. I also want to thank my husband, Bob Kagan, and my kids, Lainey and David, for their love and their wise counsel. Bob and David are with me today. Lainey's studying for her law exams. Uh, it is a huge honor to be nominated by President Biden and Secretary Blinken to serve as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. If confirmed, I will rejoin the profession and the department that I love, determined every day to strengthen America's capacity to protect our freedom, our security, and our prosperity. And I will support Secretary Blinken in his vision to re-energize American diplomacy, to strengthen our alliances and partnerships, and to build the closest possible collaboration with this committee and with both houses of Congress. Over 32 years in the Foreign Service, I served five presidents and nine secretaries of state from both Republican and Democratic administrations. That experience taught me that America is at its strongest when our foreign policy enjoys broad bipartisan support both in Washington and at kitchen tables across America. And the move that you have made together on a bipartisan China bill is really important in that regard. Could I just ask you to turn, get your microphone closer to you? It's a little difficult. Is that better? Yes, thank you. Okay. My Foreign Service career was full of adventures and challenges and historic moments from my first tour in Guangzhou, China in 1985, to watching the Soviet flag come down and the Russian flag go up over Red Square in 1991, to being at NATO when it invoked Article 5, an attack on one as an attack on all 20 years ago in solidarity after the Twin Towers fell. And of course, I had the opportunity to work closely with many of you in this room, both when I was ambassador to NATO in the Bush administration and as assistant secretary for European and Eurasian affairs in the Obama administration. I take pride that together we built strong bipartisan approaches to policy, and many members of this committee and the Senate contributed with their own travel and diplomacy. Today, our nation faces a confluence of challenges as daunting as at any time in my professional life. China, under Xi Jinping, does not simply want to compete with us. It wants to dominate the international system and change its rules to benefit autocrats and undercut freedom around the world. Putin's Russia has deployed its fighters and weapons on almost every continent and accelerated its disinformation, 
election interference, and snuff campaigns against its opponents. Iran is again enriching uranium at 20% while continuing to destabilize its neighborhood from Syria to Yemen to Lebanon to Iraq. ISIS and al-Qaeda are weakened, but they are not defeated. And too many of the world's citizens are suffering under corrupt and or illegitimate leaders with blood on their hands. Add to this the urgent global challenges we share, restoring global health and security, tackling climate change, and building our democracies and economies back better with more equity and more justice. If confirmed as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, my job will be threefold. First, to take on any negotiations or diplomatic assignments and management issues that the Secretary deems necessary. Second, to oversee the work of the regional bureaus and the Bureau of International Organizations, ensuring that this orchestra of talent plays in harmony. And third, to maintain the closest coordination with fellow political directors around the world, especially in allied and partner capitals, to build com uh, communities of common action. If confirmed, I will also be the senior lifer in the State Department, the President and Secretary Blinken have pledged to respect and empower our great workforce and to have their backs. That was also a powerful motivator for me to return to service, to help revitalize and modernize American diplomacy. We must give our foreign and civil service and local employees more professional opportunities, support, training, career flexibility, and better technology while strengthening diversity at all levels of the Department. I am also animated every day by a firm belief that America is safer and stronger when we lead. As Secretary Blinken has said, the alternatives are far worse, a chaotic vacuum or a global takeover by the enemies of freedom. I also share President Biden's conviction that we are at a global inflection point. Democracy will and must prevail, but democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to defend it, we have to fight for it, strengthen it, and renew it. If confirmed, it will be the honor of a lifetime to play my part in that effort. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Sayo. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, Senator Kane, for your kind words, and distinguished committee members. It is also the honor of my lifetime to be President Biden's nominee as Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. I'm deeply grateful to the President and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they've placed in me. I also want to thank those who made my journey here possible. My husband, Tom, for always having my back and his decades of service to our nation as a U.S. Marine and civilian. I also want to thank our two children, Kira and Lexi, who couldn't be here today, but whose idealism never ceases to inspire me. Ours is a family rooted in public service and the advancement of freedom. From my father-in-law, a World War II veteran who fought tyranny on the shores of Okinawa, to my grandfather, a freedom fighter in India's quest for independence, to my mother, whose own education was cut short by marriage at the age of 16 and invested all her brilliance in raising four independent-minded, opinionated daughters to seize opportunities never afforded her. I thank my parents, brother, and sisters for their solidarity in joining virtually today. In today's disrupted world, 
the work of the State Department's J family of bureaus and offices has never been more important. Authoritarianism, violent anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and xenophobia are on the rise as the world enters the 15th year of a democratic recession. The Chinese government is perpetrating genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang, strangling autonomy in Hong Kong, and repressing Tibetans, Christians, and other religious and ethnic minorities. Global human displacement is at record levels, while the scourge of human trafficking is ever-present, while terrorists expand their lethal reach from Africa to South Asia. Recognizing the enormity and complexity of the task ahead, I'd like to emphasize three core areas where, if confirmed, I would gladly partner with all of you to address. First, the United States needs to take on the China challenge from a position of strength rooted in human rights and our democratic values. Having led U.S.-China human rights dialogues, I know the severe repression that has only grown more acute under the CCP. I met with courageous Chinese human rights activists and their families, gave voice to their concerns at the United Nations, and demanded the release of Chinese prisoners of conscience who put their quest for liberty above their personal welfare. I'm proud to have been banned on Weibo for denouncing systematic Chinese human rights abuses in Beijing in 2013. We also must continue to press China on synthetic opioids, which have killed far too many Americans. Second, we must defend and renew democracy at home in tandem with allies and partners. We are stronger when we work together to address not only China's human rights abuses and Russia's malign efforts to undermine Western democracies, but also rising corruption, disinformation, hate crimes, cyber threats, and violent extremist movements. If confirmed, I will leverage decades of experience from Europe to South Asia shoring up alliances and partnerships in service of shared democratic values and champion administration initiatives such as the Quad Summit and the Planned Democracy Summit. I'm strongly committed to using tools developed by Congress such as the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act and the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act to target human rights violators, human traffickers, and kleptocrats and to encourage parallel action by allies and partners. Third, we need more integrated, inclusive, and effective foreign policies and programs that deliver for the American people. If confirmed, I would build on my experiences inside and outside government to ensure that our assistance and policies have measurable impact and help support reliable, rights-respecting, burden-sharing partners for the United States. To this end, I will support meaningful implementation of key bipartisan legislation, such as the Global Fragility Act, the Child Soldiers Protection Act, and the Women, Peace, and Security Act. And with the devastating impact of COVID-19, we need to ensure that humanitarian assistance and diplomacy work in tandem towards promoting prevention, self-reliance, and durable solutions. And finally, with research showing that diverse organizations produce greater impact and innovation. I will gladly champion Secretary Blinken's effort to build a more diverse and inclusive State Department, especially with respect to the Jay family workforce. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and potentially return to public service. 
If confirmed, I'll work intensively with all of the members of this committee on policies that seek to deliver greater peace, security, and prosperity for the American people. I welcome your questions. Thank you very much to both of you. And we'll start a, a round of uh, five minutes uh, questioning. Um, Ambassador Newland, I appreciate your leadership over the years in countering Kremlin malign influence. I don't think they were very happy to hear of your nomination, which is a good thing. But a lot has changed since you were in government. Uh, thanks to Congress, we have the CATSA law, which forced the last administration to take some sanctions measures. However, the last administration also ignored key mandatory provisions in CATSA and did little to galvanize our friends in Europe to counter Russian aggression in all of its forms. So what specific new measures would you recommend the Biden administration take to build cohesion among our European allies to show a united front against Kremlin aggression? Thank you, Chairman, and thank you for your leadership on this issue. I'm going to guess you're right about Kremlin's attitude to today's proceedings. Uh, I think we made a very important step today with the strong package of sanctions and measures that the president announced, including, very importantly, constraining uh, Russia's access to our financial markets to hold them to account for the solar winds attack and other things. I think you've also seen that uh, the administration has already been working hard to align with allies and partners when it moves on Russia. For example, the uh, sanctions that were imposed after Navalny's arrest in February were, uh, were matched in Europe and in other parts of the world, I agree with you completely that the U.S. can, can confront Russia alone, but that's the, not the smart policy, and we are far stronger when we do it together. I was very pleased to see Chancellor Merkel, for example, issue a parallel, very strong warning to uh, President Putin with regard to his aggression in and around Ukraine and the buildup of forces. That's the kind of thing we need to do, and we need to continue to build sanctions packages together so that the costs are borne, borne equally, and, um, and we highlight what Russia is doing collectively. Can we count on you to uh, robustly uh, implement uh, the CATSA law? Absolutely, as well as Global Magnitsky, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, let me uh, turn to China, which we collectively agree is our probably biggest strategic challenge. Uh, whether it's the um, broader uh, Indo-Pacific region uh, getting that right, which I think is the way which we ultimately face the China challenge correctly, um, or the previous administration, which I welcome the Trump administration's clarification of our legal position on China's unlawful claims in the South China Sea, how do you intend to be part of implementing a, a new approach that uh, we know that such claims are not self-enforcing? Uh, it's critical that we make a legal position of reality, not just a rhetoric in the Ch South China Sea and on other things. How do you see your role in that regard? Uh, well, Mr. Chairman, I agree with you. And as I said in the opening, China's not just competing with us. It wants to change the rules of the global system. This is the challenge of our time, and having strong bipartisan consensus, not just in this committee, but across the Congress and across the country, makes us stronger, 
So does investing in our strength at home. But as you have said, and as we talked about with regard to Russia, doing this in tandem and addressing all of China's um, issues in tandem with our allies and partners is absolutely essential. So we have to build a coalition of allies and partners to combat unfair trade practices, to address the aggressive security uh, policies of China in the South China Sea and in the Taiwan Straits, the cybersecurity, disinformation, all of these things, and protect against a PRC takeover of international organizations. I'm particularly gratified to see more countries joining us, as you said, in the South China Sea with freedom of navigation patrols, et cetera. And we need to take this new quad and build on it and get Europe and other parts of the world more involved. Um, If confirmed, obviously, every bureau that I will oversee will have to play a very strong role in our China policy. And I would be responsible for weaving that into everything that we do. Thank you very much. Ms. Say, let me ask you one question. Uh, The previous administration, in my view, deprioritized human rights and weakened U.S. credibility on this important value from abdicating our role in the Human Rights Council to failing to call out dictators and human rights abusers, the previous administration disregarded one of the most critical pillars, I I view, of U.S. foreign policy. Can you speak to the importance of U.S. leadership on human rights in terms of our values and interests? And will you make it a priority to ensure that we're working to hold both our allies and our adversaries to the same standards on human rights? Thank you, Senator, uh, for your leadership on bipartisan human rights issues as seen in the Strategic Competition Act and, and I think, a very pertinent question. Uh, I would commend uh, the administration's approach to uh, reasserting U.S. human leadership on human rights by reclaiming an American seat at the table. I think the U.S. decision to rejoin the recent Human Rights Council session and to seek a re-election to the Human Rights Council reflects its commitment to make the aspiration of centering human rights and democratic values in our foreign policy a reality. I would say that they're doing this eyes wide open, recognizing uh, many of the endemic flaws within the Human Rights Council itself, starting with the fact that you have almost a who's who of the world's worst human rights violators as members of that grouping. But I think even within the session that just took place where the U.S. was an observer, we're seeing the positive impact of American engagement and leadership. And, you know, one of the very important issues that I would continue to focus on is uh, working to eliminate a pervasive anti-Israel bias in UN fora. At the just concluded Human Rights Council session, they were able to reduce the number of agenda items for Article 7. You know, the only country in the world is Israel having a specific uh, agenda inclusion in that fashion. And also work with like-minded partners on issues like Sri Lanka, Belarus, Iran, so many of the core concerns of this committee, and I would work to expand and sustain that leadership. Thank you. Senator Risch. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, First of all, uh, uh, Ms. Newland, I want to talk about the uh, JCPOA for a moment. Um, Look, all of us have been through this exasperating exercise now for many, many, many years. Can you give me your thoughts on on how we can get together on this, the the administration and Congress? I mean, I I can't – words alone can't explain to you how frustrated we were in dealing with the negotiators uh, last time as they 
they dealt uh, uh, with Iran, totally ignored everything we asked them to do, uh, and then came back and wanted us to uh, agree to what, what they had agreed to. How, how are we going to work through this? Help me out here. Senator Risch, I agree with you 100 percent that whatever agreements we reach with Iran need to be supported in a bipartisan fashion, uh, not only on this committee, but across the Congress and across America. And, you know, that will ensure that they are binding across administrations and for the long term. So we have to do our job and consult at every phase and hear your ideas and incorporate them. Um, and use your expertise and the expertise that we have uh, on this committee and throughout the Congress. We also have to get on with the job because as we sit here, Iran is now enriching again at 20 percent. It is deploying the IR2 centrifuges again. Its breakout time is shortened. So, you know, first job, get them back in the box, and then together define what longer and stronger means and, and work together as we go through these negotiations. You know, I think you know from our time together working on Ukraine, we built that policy together, and it was enduring because of that. And if confirmed, I would pledge to be here as often uh, as, as we need to be to, to ensure that we all support what's, going, what's happening. Well, I appreciate that. Um, one of the things that, that strikes me, and I... I've just become so disgusted with this over the years that uh, I, I've listened very carefully to the nation that is most directly affected by uh, what happens with uh, uh, Iran's nuclear ambitions. And they are very clear that it doesn't matter uh, what kind of an agreement you make. They're going to take care of themselves. And so, uh, look, however we go forward in this, they've got to be brought into the fold here to, to – uh, come along because they, they, they don't believe they're bound by this. They believe that their existential existence uh, depends on Iran not having a nuclear weapon, and they're going to see that they don't, regardless of what the uh, agreement says. So uh, the, these are, th this is an issue that really has to be addressed, and, uh, and uh, the, uh, the question I keep asking the administration is, what happens when you get the call? Uh, because that, that, that's going to be the question. What do we do when we get the call? And so I, I think that's something that's obviously appropriate for a closed session, but uh, somebody's got to answer that question. Um, in any event, uh, let's, let's talk for uh, just a minute. Uh, while I'm, my time's running out, um, let's, uh, uh, let, let me explain. <laughs> let me again express my frustration uh, on the UN Human Rights Council. I, I I understand all the criticism that was given the last administration for getting up and walking out of the council. Frankly, I wasn't as shocked as a lot of people were. Um, I, I don't know how you sit at a table with uh, uh, as as you indicated. You're sitting around a table with the who's who of human rights violators on the planet. And, and how do you talk to these people? How do you say to them, you guys got to behave yourself even a little bit more? And, and they telling us, mind your own business, you know, we'll handle our things internally. How do you handle that? Senator, I, I, I share your concern and, and even frustration over, over that issue. But I think it's a question of tactics where um, U.S. disengagement from the multilateral system leaves a vacuum that others are very gladly um, 
there to fill, starting with China, but also Russia and other countries allied to, to basically entirely distort uh, the framework of uni- universal human rights, use arguments of sovereignty to reject uh, any notion of international scrutiny or accountability for human rights violations. So I think the United States needs to be there, but I think the critical element as well, is, as I cited, is is really using um, leveraging our alliances and partnerships, something that China and Russia do not have and does not compare, as, as a force multiplier to, um, to basically integrate universal human rights and our democratic values to make bodies like the Human Rights Council much more effective and upholding the mission that they were set out to pursue. Well, thank you. I, 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 that's a really good description of, of what they do and uh, their malign activities. Uh, but I, I think uh, uh, any the general statement that we want to make things better, as you talked about it, getting them to move forward on this, I, I, I wish you well. I really, really do. But, but I'll tell you, Watching what they've done and how they defend it, I'm sure not optimistic in that regard, but uh, I wish you well, and we'll support you every way we can. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and let me thank both Ambassador Newland and Mrs. Zaya for your public service, your incredible record of to our country, and your willingness to continue. And uh, I also want to express my thanks to your family for putting up with public service. It's not always easy, so thank you both. You both have mentioned that our foreign policy mission must be defined by our values, and I agree completely with that. I've listened to President Biden's express that on several occasions, as well as Secretary of State Blinken. Both of you mentioned Global Magnitsky, and uh, I'm pleased that you initiated the importance of that particular statute that was passed by Congress and incorporated in an executive order uh, by, uh, the, uh, by the president. You might be aware that there's a, statute, there's a limitation on that uh, sunset clause, and there's legislation to remove that sunset clause, and, and I take it will have uh, your support for making it clear that that statute needs to be permanent by Congress. Yes, Senator, absolutely. Thank absolutely. you. I got both of your answers. Thanks. Appreciate that. And, and Ambassador Newland, I want to just uh, underscore your point about President Biden's action taken against Russia. Uh, it was not only decisive action, as it was, it was very clear on its findings, which was refreshing to see the President of the United States be very clear about Russia's accountability under Mr. Putin. Uh, in regards to incursions on borders of other countries, in regards to the uh, the treatment of Mr. Navalny, in regards to uh, uh, interference in our cybersecurity, all those was very clear findings. So that was refreshing to see. So knowing your record, it looks like the president is following in your footsteps about being very direct about issues, and we appreciate that very much. Uh, I also want to underscore the point that both of you made, that we have to engage our allies. If we're going to be effective in our foreign policy objectives, it's not only having bipartisan support here in Congress, it's having the support of our uh, like-minded countries. And uh, that requires effort. And we've done that in regards to the sanctions under Global Magnitsky. We've gotten more and more countries to to go along with us. Uh, But I think we need to do more 
of the, that type of outreach. Ms. Zay, I want to just mention one area that's under your portfolio, and that's trafficking in persons. We have a pretty clear statute on trafficking in persons. It's a pretty objective findings as to what tier a country uh, would, would find itself. But we've had problems under previous administrations where political considerations interfered with the objective findings of countries uh, because of other bilateral considerations. Do we have your commitment that you will maintain the integrity of the TIP uh, reports so that it's based solely on the facts and not interfered with by other politics? Yes, Senator, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, and I use that as an example because there's legislation that I hope will, will move in this Congress that will use that model for dealing with corruption activities, anti-corruption activities in countries. All countries have problems with trafficking. All, problems have, all countries have problems with corruption. Many of the issues that you've talked to, the root problem is corruption. Mr. Putin does what he does because he gets a lot of money. The oligarchs support his operations, his corruption. And we need to increase the capacity in our country missions to evaluate the corruption situations, as we did with trafficking, and then evaluate and use that for foreign policy considerations. And that legislation does exactly that. So can I have both of your... Uh, uh, commitments to work with us on passing legislation that would use the trafficking model to deal with corruption so that we have capacity in each of our mission countries uh, to deal with corruption in those countries. Yes, Senator, I confirm to consult with you and would certainly support uh, the elevation of U.S. anti-corruption efforts and view corruption as both a, a violation of human rights, a, a means to uh, sustain autocracy, as well as a uh, inherent danger to democracies. Senator, same from, from me. Corruption is a country killer. It is also a tool of malign outside actors. I think we've got to do a better job of pulling together the tools of government to help countries attack corruption. So combining the efforts of State Department, intelligence services, treasury, justice into a fusion, and we can do that off the embassy platforms, but we also have to, to train and educate and support our officers out in the field better, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with you on these issues. Thank you. Uh, my last point, it's not a question, is that dealing with diversity in the State Department is a very high priority, and I, I know both of you have mentioned that. Recognize that you have support in the Senate to advance diversity within the Department of State. We have it's a challenge because we're looking for senior positions as well as entry positions, and I hope that you will work with us on a strategy as to how we can improve the record of diversity within the State Department. Yes, I will. Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Senator Cardin, and we look, we look forward. I, I think you've spoken to the ranking member as well. We look forward in the near future to um, uh, have your legislation on corruption, uh, for, which I understand is bipartisan, for a, a markup soon. Um, I'm going to see if we have some of our colleagues virtually. Uh, Senator Paul. All right. Uh, Senator Cruz. Senator Haggerty. Okay. Then as we wait for them to get connected. Let me turn to uh, Senator Shaheen. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to both of you on your nominations, and thank you both for your willingness to come back into the State Department and continue your public service, which has been admirable on both counts. Um, Ambassador Newland, I have um, and have expressed disappointment in the President's decision to set the September deadline in Afghanistan to remove all of our troops. Given that we have a very limited time there, is there anything that we should be looking for in terms of benchmarks that we should try and reach before that September deadline? Thank you, Senator, and thank you for your long commitment to Afghanistan and particularly to the, to the women of Afghanistan. Um, as, as you mentioned, when we prepare for the U.S. redeployment of forces, that puts an emphasis even more strongly on the diplomatic aspects of our work and on the embassy as the platform for that. So we've really got to bear down on this peace process and on bolstering civilian and economic and humanitarian assistance programs and particularly those that protect the gains that have been made and the gains of women and human rights. Afghan people, we've got to, as the president has pledged to do, uh, expand and expedite special immigrant visas for those Afghans who helped us. We've got to ensure that as we find a new place to stage our counterterrorism efforts, um, that we are successful in the diplomacy to establish that, but also in their ability to deploy uh, as needed. I think that we, and we also have to look at our embassy platform, uh, particularly when we don't have military security around it. So I would expect we're going to be coming back to uh, this committee and to the Congress as a whole uh, for more support, um, and particularly also to get you involved in the diplomacy. I know that's been something you've been willing to do in the past. So uh, watch this space. Thanks. And can you expand a little bit on uh, post uh, withdrawal strategy with respect to how we can continue to support the gains that women and girls have made in Afghanistan? Uh, well, Senator, I want to be careful here because I obviously... Assuming you've been confirmed. Yes, yeah. Um, I wasn't part of, of the deliberations. Yeah. But as you know, we have very robust uh, support programs, assistance programs, civilian training programs uh, for women and girls, both in Afghanistan and, and outside. I think we need to ensure that our allies and partners are also contributing to that effort, and we have to hold uh, the Afghan government and the Taliban to account for their commitments in this regard, and it needs to be a fundamental measure of whether Afghanistan is uh, making progress or retaining the gains or sliding backwards. Um, Ms. Zaya, I appreciate your mentioning the Women, Peace, and Security Act in your opening remarks. I think it's um, a very important tool that we have and um, I was disappointed that it wasn't used by the previous administration in Afghanistan as they were negotiating with the Taliban. But can you talk about how you'll work with the Office of Global Women's Issues if you're confirmed to ensure that the J family is aligned with the gender concerns of um, GWE and the GPC? Absolutely, Senator. And I, I want to thank you for your, for your leadership on uh, building bipartisan consensus for, you know, greater women's empowerment and ultimately achieving uh, 
women, peace and security goals. And I think the Afghanistan example is critical, as you discussed with Ambassador Newland. Um, I would say from my own perspective, I think it's very important with this decision for the U.S. to continue to strongly support increased women's participation in the peace process. As you're well aware, women's participation in peace processes, most of which fail, you know, by record of history, makes them 35% more likely to last 15 years or more. This is critical, I think, at the inflection point we find ourselves. Um, It's also critical to take an integrated approach in the State Department. I think since the GWE office was created, and, you know, it's been a bipartisan effort with important progress made, it's really critical to recognize this, this is not the work of one office. So if confirmed, I would certainly seek to further integrate gender equality across the full spectrum of J family activity, obviously on democracy and human rights, but also on issues like counterterrorism, counter narcotics, and quite obviously trafficking in persons. So this work is, is too important. It's too enormous for any one office to accomplish alone. And I certainly would seek to leverage the talent and expertise in J family to make WPS goals a, a reality. And I think we have a critical task ahead of us in Afghanistan to to make that possible. Well, thank you both very much. And if, if you're confirmed, and I assume you will be, I look forward to working with you. Thank you, Senator Shane. Thank you for your leadership on global women's issues. With that, I understand now that Senator Haggerty is with us virtually. Senator Haggerty? Thank you very much. Okay. I have a question from Isaiah, please. Isaiah, this is a matter of deep concern to me. It's a serious problem in my home state of Tennessee. December 1st, 2018, President Xi promised then President Trump to halt the export of fentanyl and all of the ingredients used to create fentanyl. Since that promise was made, we've had over 100,000 American lives lost to synthetic opioids directly traceable to CCP-produced fentanyl. If I think about it, America's done a great job in the current administration and the administration that preceded it in dealing with the COVID-19 situation. But there is no vaccine for the addiction to fentanyl that we're experiencing at the hands of communist China. Can you tell me what your plan is to address this and to hold President Xi to his promise made in December of 2018. Thank you, Senator, for, for raising a critically important issue. And I just want to express my own um, concern for the welfare of, of your constituents. And this was one of the reasons I, I raised this point in my opening remarks. And as, as you uh, recounted, I think there, there was progress made under the previous administration where China agreed to implement controls and schedule uh, fentanyl analogs. But sadly, what happened is we saw transnational criminal organizations adapt and basically shift to using precursor chemicals from China, um, negating the gains from from the previous effort, which was the result of considerable uh, U.S. diplomacy and negotiation. So I absolutely believe that the Chinese government can and must do more to hold its citizens and companies accountable that are supplying these precursors to transnational criminal organizations in Mexico and elsewhere. I think the 
United States needs to take a whole-of-government approach where the State Department, our embassy in Beijing, plays a very important role, but we also need to work with the Department of Homeland Security, DEA, DOJ, to take on the Chinese government's willful ignorance on this issue and to really prioritize saving the lives, as, as you mentioned, the, the record numbers of American losses due to opioid-related uh, overdoses is, is unacceptable, and this is something I would intend to prioritize if confirmed. I appreciate your prioritization of that, and I would also underscore the fact that our border has become far more porous at Mexico, and that's where this fentanyl is coming in and being produced in mass quantities. I was just back in my home state of Tennessee talking with sheriffs, with mayors, and what they've told me is something I think is probably being experienced across America. And that's been a huge uptick in the number of overdoses since the borders collapsed after the 20th of January. So this situation has become even, even more critical at this point, and I very much appreciate your attention to it. Thank you, Senator, uh, for sharing that information, and I will certainly uh, work to prioritize that in in the work of the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Bureau, and I know this remains a significant priority in terms of our counter-narcotics engagement with Mexico. Thank you, Ms. Ayo. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, Next is Senator Kane, and uh, there is a vote that is ongoing it is the intention of the chair to work through the vote, so I would urge members to uh, possibly vote and, and return. Uh, the order I have, this was an uh, order of appearances, uh, uh, and of course we will flip back and forth to the extent that there are members on the other side who are available. It's Senator Kane, uh, Senator Merkley, I don't know if they will be here, but Senator Schatz, Senator Van Hollen, Senator Coons, uh, Senator Booker, Senator Murphy, that's the order I have. With that, Senator Kane. Great to see both of you, and congratulations on your nominations. Um, Ambassador Newland, briefly, I'm about to reintroduce a bill that this committee acted on last year, but that never saw action on the floor, that would clarify that no president can withdraw unilaterally from NATO Uh, without congressional action, NATO is a Senate-affirmed treaty. Um, I view this as a statement of congressional prerogatives, but also just simply an effort to demonstrate to our NATO allies that congressional support for the alliances in near 75 years is still very, very strong. Uh, You have a lot of experience with our NATO allies. Would they see that statement of strong intent from Congress in a positive light? Thanks, Senator Kane. Uh, when you introduced it last year, you could hear the huzzas on the other side of the Atlantic. I think there, there was quite a lot of quite a lot of concern, and you know, I also think that it's really interesting that over the last three years, public opinion polling on the United States with regard to NATO has gone up to record levels over the last 20 years. You know, Americans want to work with allies and partners, um, so I think you're reflecting. Uh, the bipartisan commitment to our great alliance as well across the country. So I commend you. Thank you. And and when that uh, bill was acted on by the committee last year, just to specify, it was a very bipartisan vote. It was bipartisan in introduction. The version that we'll introduce, again, is very bipartisan. Um, Ms. Zaya, thank you for the conversation that we had the other day. Um, One of the issues I'd like to ask you about 
is the uh, issue of the refugee cap. The, the past administration dramatically scaled back U.S. acceptance of refugees. And the Biden uh, administration, sort of in campaign and early in the day, said we wanted to kind of return more to the norm where the U.S. was accepting refugees who go through a careful vetting process um, because our nation has been such a haven for those seeking refuge from circumstances that are just nearly unspeakable. Um, tell me, is, is it your understanding that it is still the administration's intent to revert back to a norm on refugee admission? Some of us are a little bit discouraged at the timing and pacing of that, but please let us know uh, what the administration's plans are uh, to your knowledge. Thank you, Senator. Um, I can assure you that I strongly support President Biden's public commitment to raise the ceiling for refugee admissions to 125,000 uh, for fiscal year 22. Now, as a non nominee, I'm not privy to policy discussions that are underway, but I know that the president is committed to regrowing this program and doing it in the most effective, orderly, and humane way possible. So if confirmed, I will do everything in my power to make this a reality. My, my surmise is that when the past administration cut the program down so dramatically in terms of the admissions, they may have also reassigned staff who were working on vetting and other issues. And so I don't think we want to just go back to the number without having a staff to make sure the program is run well. So I think we will all we would all understand if it takes a while to get back to the norm. But we would, should you be confirmed, we would really love your um, reporting to us about the progress toward that, recognizing it's just it's not just the State Department issue, but multiple agencies work on this. And we would love to be in dialogue with you about that going forward. Um, human rights questions, I, I can't think of anybody whose background is better suited than yours to dealing with these tough human rights issues. And one of the things that, you know, I've often found on this committee in dealing with human rights issues is it's one thing to raise them against adversaries. You know, what's happening with the Uyghurs in China, what's happening with Hong Kong pro-democracy activists. We need to be muscular in raising these with adversaries. But one of the most difficult sets of human rights issues when you're dealing with allies and, you know, whether it's a, a we've had a, an alliance with Saudi Arabia, we have an alliance with Egypt, but we run into significant human rights challenges with them. And when you raise human rights issues with an ally, one of the stock responses, we used to hear this from the past administration, but not just them, from others is, well, if you push us too hard on human rights, of course, we'll just buy our arms or do our you know, diplomatic activities with Russia or others. Just talk about how we balance aggressive promotion of our human rights values um, with this sort of oft-repeated threat that, well, if you push us, we'll, we'll deal with countries that aren't interested in human rights. Thank you, Senator, I think, for, for raising, you know, what is a, a challenging and a critically important issue, this issue of consistency with respect to centering human rights and, and democratic values in our foreign policy. And in this case, uh, the way I see it, the administration is absolutely committed to democratic renewal at home and abroad. And with this, this, this means that it's important as we seek to shore up our alliances and partnerships for us to hold one another accountable. Um, and ultimately, I think we've seen 
how a selective U.S. approach to human rights, one that only targets U.S. competitors or adversaries, ultimately undermines U.S. credibility and and leadership. So I can uh, pledge to you, if confirmed, uh, I would work very closely with Ambassador Newland, with counterparts in regional bureaus, our 270 missions in the field, to um, to strike the right balance and to make sure that we are truly centering human rights and democratic values in our foreign policy. I think that the initiative of the Democracy Summit, which the president has committed to, is a very important one where we can help carry a concrete agenda forward on issues like corruption, uh, countering rising authority or authoritarianism, and, and really defending human rights at home and Thank abroad. Thank you much. I'm over my time. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, I just want to echo Senator Kane's concern about the presidential declaration on refugees. There's a difference between refugee resettlement and the question of those who seek asylum at our border. They're fundamentally different, and they should not be conflated. And I do hope, and I believe the president is committed to that, but the sooner he signs the declaration, the greater that the crystallization of that commitment will be realized. So uh, thank you. Um, I'm not sure if there are any members presently waiting virtually. If you, if you are, please speak up at this time. Um, in not hearing any, I, I do understand that Senator Coons is coming back and there's another member uh, on his way. So uh, let me take advantage of the time to ask one or two questions that I had intended to wait to the end. Uh, <clears throat> Ambassador uh, Azerbaijan's attack on the Armenian people last fall with Turkey's full support was, in my view, an unspeakable tragedy. The absence of top-level United States diplomacy throughout the war was inexcusable, and we have to prevent it from repeating in the future. I also believe the U.S. must press Azerbaijan to release the prisoner of war members that it has, which is refusing to release them, in violation of international law and to ensure that the Armenians displaced from their homes in Nagorno-Karabakh get the assistance they need. So, uh, if you are confirmed, will you commit to advocating for robust humanitarian assistance, including demining funds, to help the Armenians in the South Caucasus who have been displaced from their homes or otherwise affected by Azerbaijan's attack? And secondly, what can we do uh, to revitalize the OSCE Minsk group and create a more sustainable uh, peace process. Absolutely, Mr. Chairman. I think you know that I've worked on Armenia-Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh issues for some 25 years, and the way things went down last year was absolutely um, tragic for so many in the region. Um, so, as you say, we have to get prisoners released. We have to get humanitarian support back in. We have to ensure the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Armenia and that it can make its own decisions. And we have to talk to our ally, Turkey. Um, you know, the, the Secretary has spoken about needing to be clear-eyed regarding trends in Turkey. I think we've got a lot of work to do there in our bilateral relationship um, to make clear our concerns about not only what Turkey's doing outside its country, but also what it's doing inside its country. So um, I think we've got to get back into the business of strong support for 
the Caucasus countries being active diplomatically, getting high-level leadership there, showing support, et cetera, and using all of our uh, economic and humanitarian tools. And I hope we will be a strong advocate for getting POWs back. I mean, it's just in violation of international law. Absolutely. With that, let me turn to Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to both the nominees. Congratulations on your nominations. I enjoyed conversations with both of you uh, in my office. Uh, Ms. Newland, I, I want to turn to a topic that is not going to surprise you, uh, and it is a topic we have discussed at great length, and that is Putin's Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, I have deep concerns that the Biden administration is on the verge of squandering what was an enormous bipartisan victory uh, won by this committee, by Congress, and the previous administration last year. Nord Stream 2 was 90% complete when Congress passed bipartisan sanctions that I authored along with Senator Shaheen that stopped the pipeline in its tracks, immediately stopped the pipeline for a year. Russia has begun again building the pipeline. It did so in the weeks following Joe Biden's election. And it did so because Russia believes the Biden administration is not going to follow the law, that they're not going to enforce the bipartisan sanctions that have passed now both houses of Congress with the chairman's support, with the support of virtually every member of this committee, passed twice now sanctions targeting Nord Stream 2. And yet there are voices within the Biden administration that I think are arguing not to enforce the law and enforce the sanctions. Ms. Ms. Newland, in, in your judgment, can you assess the damage to American national security and to the energy security of our European allies if the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is completed? Uh, Senator Cruz, thank you for your leadership on this issue. We did have a robust conversation about this, and we also worked on energy security together when I was in the European uh, Assistant Secretary job. Look, this isn't just a bad deal for Germany and Europe. It violates their own climate policy, their energy policy to go greener. It deepens their dependence on Russia just at a time when Moscow is rearming around and inside Ukraine and when they're letting Navalny wither in prison. Uh, so I want to thank you for the tools you and this committee and this Congress have given us uh, I think we need to use all the tools at our disposal to stop this pipeline before it is finished. We need to press the German government to do the same. Um, as I said earlier, I was very pleased to see a strong statement from Chancellor Merkel warning President Putin about his arming in Ukraine. Nothing would send a stronger signal to him than the cancellation of this pipeline, and I think we've got to, got to make that point. And uh, if confirmed, it will be a top and early priority of mine. So if you're confirmed, what steps would you anticipate taking to, to stop the completion of Nord Stream 2? Uh, I understand there are sanctions uh, packages in development, some of them based on information that's been provided and circulated from, from the Congress. I think we have to accelerate the sanctions packages. I also think we have to be much clearer and stronger with our German allies that this is a matter of bipartisan concern across the United States, and it's taking Germany in the wrong direction in terms of its relationship with Russia. And all of us together now need to stand up to an increasingly aggressive Putin. So lots to do. 
So I very much agree with you. I, I also think time is of the essence. The Russians are trying to jam through and finish this pipeline before the administration takes action. Uh, as you know, I have tried to work with the administration using both carrot and stick to prompt the administration to comply with the law and use the tools that are available. Uh, I appreciated Secretary of State Blinken's putting out a strong statement on Nord Stream 2. And as you know, because you were in the room when we negotiated that agreement in my office, uh, that in exchange for that statement, uh, I lifted two holds that I had placed on nominees from this administration. Uh, I very much hope to lift other holds as well. But the agreement that, that we worked out was designed to be incremental and staged. Uh, and in order for the next set of holds to be lifted, we need to see sanctions on the entities responsible for Nord Stream 2. And the Biden State Department has indicated that those would be forthcoming. But they have not been. And I will say there are reports uh, of ongoing resistance within the administration to doing so. If that resistance manifests in delays, that will turn into an unequivocal win for Putin, a loss for Europe, and a loss for America. And so let me urge the administration to honor the commitments that it has made, follow the law, and issue the sanctions that are mandatory under law. We can stop this pipeline. We have stopped this pipeline. And it is only the signals of weakness and a willingness to disregard the law that have enticed Russia into returning once again to building the pipeline. Thank you. Thank you. I understand Senator Van Hollen is on line with us virtually. Uh, yes, Mr. Chairman, thank you. And let me thank both of our witnesses here today. Uh, Ambassador Newland, uh, let me start with you. I was pleased to see President Biden impose uh, sanctions uh, yesterday and today on Russia, uh, given Putin's continuing aggression, given their cyber attacks um, on the United States, uh, including uh, on our democracy and working to interfere in our elections. Uh, and of course, um, we see uh, increased um, aggressive activity uh, in eastern Ukraine uh, from Putin. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the chairman mentioned his opening statement, uh, a number of actions uh, being taken by one of our, our allies, uh, Turkey. Uh, under President Erdogan, uh, Turkey has purchased uh, the advanced air defense system, uh, the S-400 uh, from Russia. Uh, Turkey has uh, violated the airspace of another NATO ally, uh, Greece, and uh, in, invaded the territorial waters of Cyprus. Uh, under Erdogan, they've attacked our Syrian Kurdish allies who were critical to uh, our fight uh, against ISIS. Uh, additional measures taken in Armenia. So this doesn't sound like a faithful NATO ally to me. Uh, can you talk about how you and the administration uh, propose to um, deal with the challenges we're facing now? Um, under President Erdogan's Turkey. Uh, thank you, Senator Van Holland. Um, I agree with you that this is a very challenging allied relationship that is going to require a whole lot more work. 
Um, as I said to the chairman, I agree with the secretary. We've got to be clear-eyed and firm about it. It makes zero sense to me that a NATO ally is buying new Russian weapons systems. Um, it's also a matter of bipartisan concern across the United States. We need to continue to <coughs> press Turkey on this issue, as, as well as all of the other issues that we have together. And we've got to, you know, including democracy and human rights inside the country, uh, freedom of the press. We've got to get on the same page together with regard to Syria and Libya, and as we talked about earlier, Nagorno-Karabakh. And, and more broadly, I think we've got to start a conversation in NATO about backsliding uh, on our values among allies. Uh, the United States far from perfect itself, as we all know, but it's very important that we all recommit at that table to the things uh, that make us strongest, and particularly in the context of a rise of autocracy and illiberalism across the world. We, NATO allies have to stand for freedom, democracy, and governments that serve their people. So if confirmed, I, I look forward to rolling up sleeves, getting back to Ankara, and having these conversations. Well, thank you. Um, I was also pleased to see the, the Biden administration, um, first of all, uh, re reaffirm um, our ironclad uh, commitment to the security of Israel um, and, you know, deepen those uh, ties even further. And also, uh, I was pleased to see them reaffirm what had been longtime bipartisan support uh, for a two-state uh, solution uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, there are a lot of people who think it's uh, too late uh, for a two-state solution, given the changes uh, on the ground um, in the territories and other factors. Uh, do you believe it's uh, too late? And if, if not, what needs to be done to ensure that we preserve the option of a viable uh, two-state solution? Thanks, Senator. It, it remains profoundly in U.S. national interest to support a two-state solution. Uh, as you know, Senator, it's going to require willing and ready partners on both sides. Uh, in the Israeli context, we're again in a government formation period. Uh, in the Palestinian Authority, there needs to be will uh, as well. And in the meantime, we need to ensure that both Israel and the PA refrain from any unilateral steps that could exacerbate tensions and make it harder to get to a two-state solution. I think the United States has got to re remain a steady partner and continue to, to say to both Israel and the, and the Palestinian Authority that this is the best path for peace. Um, so, and, and I also... Uh, yeah. So I think that's where we've where we've got to go. And I think it's important that the National Security Council is is running almost weekly uh, sessions with Israeli counterparts, particularly in this period of transition in Israel to keep us connected, not only on these issues, but on Iran and other vital issues in the region. I appreciate that. And thank Mr. Chairman. I, I know I've run out of time. I'll submit um, uh, my questions um, for other uh, our other witness, and congratulations to both of you on your nominations. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Um, Chairman Menendez has gone to the floor to vote, as uh, you both, as uh, seasoned 
Uh, public servants know uh, the schedule of the Senate is not entirely predictable. So uh, for those watching who may be surprised that I just popped in, um, Senator Coons, I'm sitting in for a few moments for the chairman as he goes to vote. Um, thank you so much, uh, Ambassador Newland, uh, Messiah, for your willingness uh, to serve our nation again and for the support and love that your uh, family and your circle of supporters uh, have offered throughout your uh, decades of service. Um, I look forward to working uh, with both of you to address the many foreign policy challenges facing our country, um, how to build a bipartisan China strategy, something I'm really encouraged about progress being made here by Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch and their staff. There's bipartisan legislation being introduced that will be marked up next week. I am very excited about that and uh, look forward to joining as a sponsor and supporting their work on that. Um, the work uh, to address Iran's nuclear program and other threats regionally uh, from the Islamic Republic, uh, efforts to support stability in the Middle East while avoiding additional long-term entanglements, efforts to push back on and contain the malign influence of the Russian government. There are so many challenges I could take all of five minutes in uh, summarizing them, and I hope we'll get to work closely together on prioritizing human rights, defending democracy, revitalizing the State Department, confronting shortcomings in workforce diversity and others. Let me just uh, ask both of you, if I could, about the Global Fragility Act. Ms. Ayu, you were kind enough to reference it in your opening remarks. Uh, this is a tool provided by Congress on a bipartisan basis, I help co-author, to address the root causes of extremism and violence in fragile countries. Uh, will you commit um, to reviewing it and to promptly selecting the priority countries for the Global Fragility Act and submitting a revised strategy that takes into account the post a COVID context. Yes, absolutely, Senator. I think one of the fun things here, if we are both confirmed, is that we'll work on these issues together because it'll obviously cross the remits of both of our uh, jobs. So looking forward to it. It is my hope and expectation we'll use this tool to balance assistance around security, democracy, human rights, uh, and to make sure that between diplomacy, development, and defense, uh, we've got the order right. Um, the Moscow Bureau of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, is under intense pressure, really under siege by the Kremlin, uh, just one of many uh, recent examples of an authoritarian crackdown on press freedoms around the world. Um, how would you support, if confirmed, um, our RFERL's efforts to ensure that Russian citizens have access to unbiased news about their own country? And what actions would you take to support free press around the world, if I might, Ms. Zaya? Senator, I think it's it's critical for, you know, for the United States to take a whole of government approach on these issues. So certainly if confirmed, I would work closely with the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy as well as uh, USAGM on, on this critical uh, closing space for civil society and free expression in Russia that is critical to holding uh, the Putin government uh, accountable for their um, widespread violations of human rights. So I would look to, to work with partners um, in government as well as uh, the mission in the field to, to elevate this issue and, and act accordingly. Thank you. Ambassador Newland on uh, Press Freedom Broadly. Yeah, just, just to pile on, Senator, uh, and thank you for your for raising RFERL, I agree with you that they are at a critical moment here. Really interestingly, I think one of the reasons the Kremlin is cracking down is because listenership and viewership at RFERL is 
gone up exponentially over the last recent years, um, and not just in Russia, but also in Belarus and, and other parts of the world where, where press is constrained. So one of the things that Moscow understands is reciprocity. Uh, if confirmed, I would be interested in looking at whether we are um, being reciprocally um, constraining with regard to RT, Sputnik, and other Russian government organs. Um, press freedom is a, an absolutely essential uh, human right and, and part of um, good governance around the world. I would just lay down a marker here that I'm also concerned about press freedom in the NATO space. Um, we have a, a number of allies backsliding here, and it's very important that we keep that front of agenda. Um, and we also have a number of American companies that, um, you know, broadcast freely in these countries, and uh, their um, ability to do that is, is being constrained by governments. So a lot of work to do. I introduced um, a bipartisan Libya Stabilization Act in the last Congress, recently reintroduced it. Uh, this would support a diplomatic resolution to the ongoing grinding conflict in Libya, a country where there's 280,000 IDPs and uh, 570,000 refugees. Um, what additional actions should we be taking to ensure that elections actually take place in December of this year and to enable the government to be successful? And would movement by this committee on a bill like the Libya Stabilization Act be constructive? Ms. Ambassador Newland, if you might. Um, absolutely. We, we have a sliver of light now in Libya with these elections agreed. Um, and we've got to ensure that they are free, fair, that they are internationally observed. This is a place where, again, working with allies and partners, um, Europeans, obviously, but countries in the in the region to support Libya as it goes forward with all of this. We may need more resources to do that. I, you know, if confirmed, looked look forward to opening up the hood and seeing what we are already doing and uh, working with allies and partners to ensure that the Libyan people feel that support and get this chance that they've um, suffered so much for. Any additional comments before I turn to my colleague, Senator Murphy? Yes, Senator, I would just add on Libya, uh, endorsing Ambassador Newland's comments, I think we should also leverage all tools available, including UN and U.S. government sanctions to bring an end to foreign military intervention, uh, hold violators of human rights accountable, and ultimately support the goal of a sovereign, stable, unified Libya. Wonderful. Thank you both. Um, let me now turn to my colleague, Senator Murphy of Connecticut. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Coons. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you uh, for your willingness to serve uh, once again. Um, Ms. A, I look forward to uh, building a working relationship with you, uh, to Ambassador Newland. Um, uh, I'm glad to have you back as a uh, as a partner. Uh, I will tell you um, your candor um, and your reputation for candor. Um, we appreciate it here on the Foreign Relations uh, Committee. We often get uh, a lot of spin from administration officials on both sides of the aisle, um, but I think uh, you are well respected here on both sides of the aisle because uh, of your ability and willingness to talk to us about facts on the ground uh, as they are, not as we wish. So great to see you again. Um, speaking of uh, facts on the ground, uh, I wanted to bring us back to the negotiations over Iran's nuclear program um, and just note a statement from the Saudi foreign ministry uh, dated yesterday or today uh, in which an official there said, uh, we can begin by a nuclear deal and move on to another format that will discuss all these other issues in a positive manner. Um, 
Some folks took note of that statement, um, but it frankly likely just acknowledges two realities. One, uh, that our partners in the Gulf uh, would like to be at the table when we discuss um, broader regional security concerns, in particular Iran's support for terrorist organizations or their ballistic missile program, but also that it is much more likely to have that conversation constructively if we get back into the JCPOA and get back on the same page with the P5 plus one. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you whether you think that the likelihood of getting a comprehensive agreement where we litigate all of our uh, disputes with Iran is more likely today than it was in 2013, 2014, 2015 when we were negotiating the JCPOA. Uh, Senator Murphy, it's great to great to see you. Uh, although I am a citizen in Senator Kane's region at the moment, I, I grew up in Connecticut, so Connecticut strong. Um, look on on Iran. I think we've got to pursue all of these problems in tandem. Whether that is a question of a comprehensive agreement, I think there are many players in many different pieces of this. What is most urgent today is that Iran is breaking out again of its nuclear box. It is enriching at 20 percent. It is using these advanced centrifuges. We've got to get them back in the box on the nuclear front. Um, but at the same time, we can and should be countering their malign regional influence by being stronger diplomatically in Syria. I have concerns that the diplomatic table, what the future of Syria's political structure, et cetera, is being run by Russia and Iran, and the United States needs to be more active there. Um, we, are, we need to support Lebanon more strongly against uh, malign Iranian influence, and I was glad to see uh, current Undersecretary for Political Affairs, David Hale, make a, make a trip to Lebanon. You've worked a lot on the Yemen issue. So I believe we can be working on all on Iran's malign influence at the same time that we're having these conversations about the nuclear problem. And frankly, the players are different in some of those things. And we've also got to build the basis for people to understand better than they do now uh, what Iran's doing on the missile front. So walk and chew gum would be my answer to your question. Yeah, so I, I agree that our goal should be to walk and chew gum at the same time. I, I just, again, do think we have to be driven by realities on the ground. And I, for instance, don't believe um, that we are going to be able to make progress in Yemen while we are still outside of the JCPOA. Uh, I think while we are still engaged in maximum pressure, the Iranians are likely to use every opportunity they can find to provoke. Um, and so I do think that there is some argument to sequence uh, here, and I will continue to make that argument on this committee. Um, in the remaining time I have left, just wanted to turn to the subject that you and I have spent a lot of time working on together, and that is Ukraine. Obviously, we're, um, you know, make, taking strong steps today to send a strong message to the Russians about uh, our um, uh, our, our, um, the message we need to send regarding the uh, array of Russian forces on the border. Um, but it has always been, I think, our belief that um, while Russia wants to use that front in order to put pressure on the Ukrainian government, their longer-term plan is not likely a full military takeover of Ukraine, but to try to politically and economically weaken that country to the point where they ultimately just make the decision to install a pro-Russian or Russia-friendly government again. And so uh, just to ask this question, it is still incredibly important for us 
uh, to view this as a multi-systemic effort that while we have to have a military answer and support Ukraine in a military way, we also have to be equally focused on supporting their economy, supporting their political reform agenda, because that is maybe the most likely mechanism for Russia to eventually get a state of affairs that aligns with their interests. Uh, I absolutely agree completely. And, you know, your leadership on Ukraine uh, was essential the last time I was in government. And the fact that you uh, continue to support Ukraine is important. The the number one thing Ukraine needs to be a strong, stable, sovereign state is to tackle endemic corruption. The United States has put a huge amount of effort into that. But corruption is also a tool that the Kremlin uses to corrode Ukraine from the inside and buy governments, et cetera. So it is, it is in all of our interests to continue to work on those uh, issues. And uh, Zelensky government's taken some important steps in, in recent weeks, but there's a lot more to be done. And we also need to get help support them in getting back into alignment with the IMF and all of those things that you've worked on. And the strong support from, from the Congress for Ukraine has been important, but they need to take the steps um, to, to walk the walk. Thank you. Thank you to both. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, my understanding is there are no uh, members seeking recognition on either side of the aisle. And with that, uh, thanks to both nominees for their time today. The record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, uh, April the 16th. I'd urge the nominees to answer questions expeditiously in order for their nominations to be able to move forward to a business meeting. And with that, the committee is adjourned.